Lopate at large, I'm Ludwig Lopate. Today's guest, Jorge El Contreras, teaches intellectual property, science policy, and genetics law at the University of Utah. He's one of the nation's foremost authorities on human genetics law, and he's written a new book based on his years of investigating a groundbreaking landmark civil rights case, Association for Molecular Pathology versus Myriad Genetics Incorporated. He joins us now to discuss the genome defense inside the epic legal battle to determine who owns your DNA, which is published by Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to our show. Hello. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Wasn't Tanya Simoncelli, who was the ACLU science advisor, the, the first one to raise the idea of a lawsuit challenging gene patents? Um, you know, there had been a few earlier efforts that weren't very successful, but she's the one who brought the idea to the ACLU that eventually led to this case. Yeah. And why would this even be a matter of the ACLU? What were the legal issues that were involved? Civil liberties, legal issues. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, at, at, at root, the case was really a very technical matter of patent law, which the ACLU generally doesn't get involved in. Mm -hmm. But this case brought up some important issues around women's access to health um, and really personal uh, ownership of information about ourselves. She brought in an attorney named Chris Hansen, who is a key figure in this story. Yeah, absolutely. Chris Hansen was a veteran ACLU litigator, had been there 30 years and, and had tried a bunch of really important cases over the years involving school desegregation and online pornography and uh, mental health care facilities. What didn't, didn't he do Brown versus Board of Education or wasn't he involved in that case? Absolutely. The continuation of Brown versus right. Board um, uh, in, in the 70s, right. he was involved in. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were talking, giving some of the things that he'd done, and that one always struck me as uh, impressive in its own right. Yeah, yeah. Brown versus Board from the 50s, you know, resulted in school desegregation, but not all the schools uh, went along with it. So it took another 20 years, actually, to, uh, to get that order implemented, and he was part of that. So, so Tanya Simoncelli and Chris Hansen, she calls him in, and she brings up some of the things that she thinks they should discuss. Um, Jean, uh, well, the, uh, there was uh, the whole matter of uh, genetic discrimination. They, they wondered if they could bring a lawsuit against an insurance company that discriminated against someone with what was deemed a wrong DNA profile. Yeah, that's right. Insurers or uh, employers who might fire someone uh, or not hire someone because they had a genetic tendency toward, who knows, alcoholism or whatever it might be. Those, those were real issues, too. And then they also uh, talked about uh, their concerns about things like fMRI, brain imaging. Uh, what was the concern there? Yeah, that's right. So uh, it's like uh, an advanced form of lie detector test, mm -hmm. like the old polygraph test. Um, there were researchers and law enforcement authorities who thought, well, if we could scan someone's brain while we're asking them questions, maybe we could see if they're lying or not. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, that was illegal. 
No, it's not illegal, but it's certainly not proven science. And that's uh, that that's why the ACLU um, got involved in issues like this, you know, uh, potentially uh, depriving someone of their their rights or liberty um, based on relatively flimsy scientific evidence. And they also discussed whether insurers could refuse coverage to people who are infected with HIV um, because, and, and whether they could use a genetic propensity to heart disease or cancer uh, as, a, as a way of uh, determining whether they want to hire somebody or not or, or, or give them insurance coverage or not. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Insurance company and and employment decisions. Though so those are all science related issues that uh, the ACLU hired Tanya Simoncelli to advise them on as their first scientific director. Another concern was whether job interviews would, might require a round of genetic testing. Absolutely right. If you're an employer, maybe you want to hire someone with uh, the genes for high IQ or uh, not, uh, you know, uh, not being lazy. Who knows? Who knows what, uh, you know, you might uh, think of. So gene patenting was just one of the many things that they discussed. Uh, why That's is, right. But it's the one that became the big issue or did, did, did they resolve all of the things that we've just brought up? Oh, some of these other issues, you know, are still wending their way through the courts. Um, the discrimination, uh, genetic discrimination, uh, was a subject of legislation that got passed in uh, 2008 that has, at least for health insurance and um, employment, has ended uh, discrimination, or at least on the books it's ended discrimination on the basis of your genetics when they had this conversation, Chris Hansen and Tanya Simoncelli, um, how long had the issuance of patents for human genes been going on? It had been going on for years. So they first raised this issue at the ACLU in about 2004. Uh, but patents had been issuing on human genes since at least the early 1990s. So a good uh, 15 plus years. But but 2004 is during the Bush-Cheney administration. Uh, is that significant in any way? Um, it's only significant in that um, the ACLU had, had gotten a lot of um, support and donations after 9-11 that it allowed it to double the size of its staff and hire someone like Tanya Simoncelli to advise them on science issues, which they had never really had before. And, and Hansen's reaction to her, her bringing up gene patenting was, how can a corporation own what makes us who we are? Yeah, exactly. He, he thought she was mistaken. Um, she is not a lawyer. And uh, that one of the difficulties of working at the ACLU and not being a lawyer is that all the lawyers think they know best. Uh-huh. Well, but obviously she... She knew uh, about this. Uh, actually, women were being charged huge fees to test uh, to learn whether they had hereditary breast and ovarian cancers. Uh, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Or, or that, that they had a high likelihood that they would get those cancers because of a mutation in their genes. Were the tests so expensive because Myriad Genetics, this uh, biotech company involved in the case, had patented the BRCA genes? Yeah, that, that's exactly why. When, when you have a patent in this country, uh, you are the only one who's authorized to do whatever the patent covers. And this patent covered 
these two genes, BRCA1 and 2, that uh, create tumor suppressors in our bodies. And if people have a defect in those genes, they're really likely to get cancer. Um, but the only one who can tell you if you've got those defects is the company that owns the patent on the genes. Well, Myriad was founded by Mark Skolnick, a geneticist who was involved in early Lincoln studies, linkage studies involving Mormons. That's, and you're in Utah as well. So I guess uh, there's a connection there. And uh, he began with uh, BRCA1 um, and received a patent for that in 1997, then um, patented BRCA2 in 2001. Did anyone object at the time? Well, there was a race to discover and patent these genes that was being conducted by a dozen different labs um, all around the world. And uh, yeah, the, the company Myriad Genetics, working with the University of Utah, was the first to get their patents on file. But there was definitely dispute about who was really first, especially around BRCA2, where they they beat a team in the UK literally by one day. Mm. Um, and got their patent on file. Did insurance companies protest, or did they like this? Oh well, they didn't. Uh, they didn't protest, but they did not want to cover the test. <laughs> the, um, the test, as you said, it was expensive, right? Because Myriad had a patent; it was the only one able to do this testing. So there was no competition. And, it, you know, unlike your blood sugar test you get at the doctor for 50 or $75, they charge $3,000 wow. uh, for this test. And, and many insurers did not cover it in those days. And what was the testing process? Well, the process is um, you take a blood sample um, at your local doctor's office or clinic, and it gets FedExed to Myriad in Salt Lake City, who then sequences the BRCA genes and decides uh, whether or not they have one of these defects that is going to give you a high likelihood of cancer. And they send you back a report uh, telling you whether you do or don't. Is it an odd coincidence that Mark Skolnick's mother was a member of the ACLU? <laughs> it's a very odd coincidence. She was not just a member, but she was very active in founding the San Mateo, California chapter of the ACLU. And, um, you know, there were some family dynamics going on there when the ACLU informed her that uh, they were suing her son's company. Uh, in what way? Did she feel that uh, she had to defend him or... <laughs> <laughs> Did she well, talk to him and say, Mark, you know, we have some issues here? She she called him up and, um, you know, very nicely asked him, um, whose side should I be on, Mark? And he uh, he he very honestly told her, well, Mom, you just have to decide that for yourself. Now, originally it was all involved with the Mormons. But when did it expand to everyone? Well, everyone on the planet has these two genes. The, the reason that the University of Utah and Myriad were successful in uh, discovering these genes first is because they had access to uh, a large set of uh, Mormon genealogies and DNA samples. And the, the, uh, the Mormon uh, religion um, places a high premium on knowing who your ancestors are. And so they have genealogical records that go back 10 generations and those are linked up 
um, and you know indicate how people died. And so if you know that certain families had a lot of women who died of breast and ovarian cancer or suspect that they did, then you know you can um, you get blood samples from people in that family and try to figure out like where exactly uh, this uh, defect is uh, located on the gene. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Jorge L. Contreras, who's written a book called The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA. It's published by Algonquin Books. Uh, now, the, the case uh, that is at the center of all of this, Association for Molecular Pathology versus Myriad Genetics Incorporated, was fought in 2013. Had it been in the works for a long time? Sure, sure. So as I mentioned, the ACLU first started thinking about this in late 2004. It then took them over four years to decide and strategize about how they would bring the case to assemble 20 different plaintiffs together um, to uh, to be the plaintiffs in the case. And they filed the suit in 2009 in New York. It then took another four years that it wound its way through the court system. Um, it was appealed and uh, finally got to the Supreme Court in 2013. Prior to the case, didn't the U.S. Patent Office accept patents on isolated DNA sequences as a composition of matter? Oh, absolutely. There were thousands of human genes that had been patented. Uh, by, by 2005, a couple of researchers at MIT estimated that fully 20% of all human genes were covered by a patent of some kind. Even though there are personal genes, so somebody Even, would own somebody would own the, my my genes and my gene sequence. Uh, that's right. That's right. Or at least the, uh, the the right to tell you what's in your genes. That the genes like physically in your body they can't come and like extract. But uh, there, no one was no one other than them, other than the holder of the patent, is allowed to sequence those genes and tell you what's in them. Had any laws been passed in this regard? Uh, no, the, the patent laws, at least according to the interpretation that the patent office gave them, allowed this to happen. This is this is uh, what the lawsuit was challenging, whether you should be able to patent these genes. Mm -hmm. So nobody had challenged them before. But there were uh, other cases. Diagnostic claims were already under question through the Supreme Court's prior holdings in Bilski versus Kapos. And, and uh, is it Mayo versus Prometheus? Yeah, yeah, Mayo versus Prometheus. That was a case that came a year before the Myriad case at the Supreme Court. And Mayo versus Prometheus wasn't about genes. It was about um, uh, changing someone's drug medication dosage based on uh, their reaction to a, a blood test. And it was related. It was related. These A number of patent cases were sort of wending their way through the court system at the same time, uh, which was a really interesting time uh, between 2010 and 2014. Uh, what did the court decide in Mayo versus Prometheus? In Mayo versus Prometheus, they decided that you could not patent um, this, the, uh, an observation of a reaction in a patient's body 
and then adjusting a drug dosage based on that observation. What you were observing was just, you know, nature at work and not something that uh, researcher invented. So you can only patent an invention and you couldn't patent that observation. Now, you've interviewed over 100 key players involved in all aspects of this case, from judges and policymakers to ethicists and genetic counselors, as well as cancer survivors and those whose lives would be impacted by the decision. We, we can't talk about all of them, but are there any that you think that we should discuss because uh, they have particularly interesting stories? Well, all of the stories are interesting, but but really some of the most moving ones are the stories of the women who it turned out had these mutations in their BRCA genes, but weren't able to get tested uh, because the testing was expensive. They were on Medicaid. Medicaid didn't cover the test or uh, there were eligibility criteria that they didn't meet to get the test. And, and these are really human stories of people who were uh, put at significant risk and who, you know, couldn't make decisions about their health care, about whether or not to get, for example, prophylactic surgery um, to get their breast and or ovarian tissue removed to prevent getting themselves from getting cancer. And these, these are like very serious questions that these, these individuals face. Didn't the patents owned or controlled by Myriad Genetics cover isolated DNA sequences and methods to diagnose propensity to cancer by looking for mutated DNA sequences and, and methods to identify drugs using isolated DNA sequences? Um, that, that all sounds like uh, valuable stuff. It, it, was it just right. a matter of the price that became a major concern? Well, the price was an issue... You know, there was a policy issue around the price for the patent law issue really centered on these isolated genes, right? Because you can't patent something that exists in nature, right? You can't go out into the forest, discover a new plant or an insect and, and patent it just because you were the first one to find it. Um, and so, of course, all these genes exist inside of our bodies, inside of every one of our cells. So the way that uh, lawyers convinced the patent office to issue these patents was to argue that, well, inside of our cells, the genes are located in this very long string um, of DNA called a chromosome that each one has thousands of genes on it. What we've done is we've extracted one gene from this chromosome in the laboratory. And in our bodies, these individual genes by themselves don't exist. They're all strung together. So when we've plucked the gene out of this longer chromosome, we've created something new, something that doesn't exist in nature. And so we should be able to get a patent on it. And that, that was the argument. That, that argument succeeded for a long time. And had the U.S. Patent Office taken a stand on this matter? Absolutely. The Patent Office said, uh, yes, these, these patents are perfectly legitimate. Um, we're going to keep granting them. Until this case. Until this case, right. And then the patent office has to follow the, uh, the rulings of the Supreme Court. Um, but, but the patent office fought this case uh, all along the way. So the case was originally heard in the Southern District Court of, of New York. 
what did proponents of the validity of the patents argue? Well, they argued um, exactly uh, the argument that was made by the lawyers who got the patents, that these isolated genes do not exist in nature, so they're inventions um, that should be patented. But but there are a lot of sort of broader economic and social issues that got argued in the case, too. Like, you know, without patents, uh, we're not there's not going to be an incentive for companies to make discoveries. I mean, um, if, if anybody it, could just copy their discoveries. It, 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 you're saying that patent, these patents would encourage investment in biotechnology and also promote that, innovation yeah. in genetic research? That That's exactly the argument that gets made, yes. And that's why we have patents, right? We give uh, inventors 20 years to be the only ones that can exploit their invention uh, because without that, you know, some inventions are easy to copy. And if inventions can just get copied as soon as they're made uh, with no protection for the inventor, you're going to have fewer inventors. Well, so they're saying uh, that all of this uh, would, uh, as I said, promote innovation in genetic research by not keeping technology shrouded in secrecy. Didn't they have a case there? Yeah, and, and the patent laws are there to encourage and incentivize invention. But on the other hand, uh, they also don't allow patenting of products of nature, things that are just created not by an individual researcher, but by the world or by our bodies. And what did opponents of the patents argue? Uh, that the patents would stifle innovation? Well, they argued first, just as a matter of patent law, that these are products of nature. You didn't invent the gene, you just discovered it. And again, just like that new plant or insect, you know, you're, you're able to publish a paper and uh, claim that you were the first one to discover it, but you don't, you don't own it um, like you would if you invented some kind of new substance like a new polymer or metallic alloy. It's just not the same. And what did the district court rule? So the district court struck down the patents. Hmm. The district court said, look, we understand that the isolated gene is not the same as the gene inside the body on the chromosome. But really, in all of the important ways, it is the same, right? A gene is an information carrier. The order of the, uh, the A, T, Gs, and Cs, the nucleotides in the gene, are really what matter. And the order of those nucleotides are exactly the same, whether the gene is in your body or outside of your body. So this change that you made by pulling it out of the body, that's not enough. That's not enough to get a patent on. It's still not an invention. So Myriad then appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. That's right. And the Federal Circuit hears all appeals of patent cases, right? From all the 90-odd district courts that hear cases around the country, if it's a patent case and it gets appealed, it goes to the Federal Circuit. And they reversed the district court's decision in part? Yeah, for the most part, they did. Uh, where, where it mattered, they did, which was uh, patenting the genes as new compositions of matter. And uh, the three-judge panel of the Federal Circuit, you know, they looked at this not really as a genetics question, but as a chemistry question. And 
genes as a chemical matter, they are different when they're pulled outside of the body as opposed to sitting inside of your body. If nothing else, at the two ends where you spliced it out of the chromosome, it's different chemically. And so the federal circuit said, yeah, it's a new form of matter, a new substance. You can patent. So that was a, a total victory for Myriad, wasn't it? It was a pretty good victory for Myriad. Yeah. Yeah. They won at the federal circuit. What happened then? Well, then you go to the Supreme Court and um, that's they have the final say. It was a different Supreme Court. You have to wonder uh, what would happen if this case came before the current one. But um, what happened in the Supreme Court? Yeah, so the Supreme Court basically split the baby. Um, they, they tried to reach a compromise, and it's not a compromise that they made up. Um, the Solicitor General of the United States, the Department of Justice, uh, appeared in this case also, along with Myriad and the ACLU. And the Department of Justice made this compromise proposal that the DNA inside of your body and the sequence of DNA that's inside of your body, even if it's taken out of your body, that sequence shouldn't be patentable. But if in the laboratory you create a DNA sequence that is not the same one that's in your body, um, that should be patentable. And, and the Supreme Court pretty much adopted that reasoning. The DNA sequence that appears in our bodies, even if it's been isolated and removed from our bodies, not patentable. Was this a kind of a, a liberal versus conservative decision? Well, not really, because it was a unanimous decision at the Supreme Court, uh, a rare 9-0 decision. So... Um, you know, both sides of the political spectrum seem to come together on this one. Was the Mayo versus Prometheus decision seen as something of a precedent in the case? Yes, yes. So Mayo and Prometheus related to those method claims that you mentioned earlier, the a method of uh, diagnosing a person's um, susceptibility to get breast or ovarian cancer based on having these mutations. And in Mayo versus Prometheus, the court uh, held that it was um, that just these diagnostic methods are not patentable either. So Myriad already, and even the federal circuit, which is very pro-patent, um, recognized that under the Mayo decision, those method claims would not stand up. So by the time the Myriad case got to the Supreme Court, what they had left and what they were fighting about were those composition of matter claims, the patents on the genes themselves. So shouldn't that have just resolved the whole problem? Uh, which problem? Sorry. Well, the Supreme Court decided pretty much against Myriad. It, it did. Well, uh, according to the ACLU viewed this as uh, resolving the problem. They, they pretty much won the case. Um, but the biotech industry and Myriad, you know, were not very happy with that decision. And uh, after the American Civil Liberties Union, the Public Patent Foundation filed a petition for certiorari. Uh, the Supreme Court granted certiorari, unanimously invalidated Myriad's claims to isolated genes. That's right. That's right. And they, you know, they considered it a big victory and it had it had a big impact on 
the cost of BRCA testing and um, the availability of testing. It's now pretty much anyone can get it and the price is much lower. Hmm. Well, so that should have, has that resolved the problem? Well, like I said, there are still people who are unhappy with this decision, and uh, that decision came out in 2013. Um, but there have been pretty constant efforts to get it overturned in Congress, uh, because even though the Supreme Court has the final say on uh, interpreting our statutes, including the Patent Act, Congress can always amend the Patent Act, as long as it's not doing something unconstitutional. And so there have been efforts, uh, including very recently, to have Congress take another look at these decisions and change the Patent Act uh, to eliminate those Supreme Court decisions. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Isn't it strange? Feels like I'm looking in the mirror. What would people say if only they knew that I was part of some geneticist plan? Born to be a carbon copy man. There in a petri dish late one night, they took a donor's body cell and fertilized a human egg. And so I say, I think I'm a clone now. There's always two of me just a we're back with Jorge El Contreras. His book, The Genome Defense, Inside the Legal, the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA, published by Algonquin Press. But uh, before I get back to this conversation, I, I want you to know that anyone who signs up to become a member of WBAI with a one-time contribution of $75 or more during today's show will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing uh, please allow six to eight weeks for delivery. Um, and you can participate in this offer for the genome defense inside the epic legal battle to determine who owns your DNA by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 during today's show. Again, that's give to WBAI.org online, or you can call 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. And don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. Now, you don't uh, discuss... Uh, some of the things that we see on television that involve uh, genetic testing, like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, are they unrelated? Well, it's all related. Um, this case related to, you know, what I said, patenting human genes. Like today, with 23andMe, because there are no more patents on these genes, you can find out your whether you have these BRCA mutations from 23andMe. But... Neither 23andMe nor Myriad nor anybody else owns those results. Anybody who can do the sequencing can tell you whether you have these uh, genetic defects. So it's a really a matter of ownership, although there are many people who are concerned about those companies knowing a lot more about us and our body's composition than we might want them to know. Well, that's absolutely right, and, and that's a very valid concern. Um, luckily, 
uh, it's still voluntary whether or not to send your sample to 23andMe or Ancestry. And, um, you know, uh, people who are concerned, uh, they don't they don't have to do it and they shouldn't. Now, has anything changed in the eight years since the final Supreme Court decision? Sure, sure. A lot has changed. So in the BRCA testing world, as I said, the price has really uh, come down and uh, the testing is much more accessible to people. But, you know, even though this case was about these two genes, BRCA1 and 2, the holding applies to all of them, right? All 20,000 genes in our bodies. And so what you can have is uh, any testing company can test for defects and mutations in any of our genes without having to get permission or without infringing somebody's patent. And so if you're willing to do it, you can find out a huge amount of information about your body and your health from places like 23andMe or, you know, dozens of other uh, testing companies. And what about Myriad? What are they doing these days? Well, Marianne's still doing well. Um, they are still the leader in providing this testing. I mean, again, they they have a lot more going for them than just the patents. Uh, they've, you know, they've run a very good test. They have an excellent quality record. Um, you know, they have a lot of staff who can explain results to people, and they've accumulated over the last twenty years a large amount of data. Um, so they they know probably more than any other company. Um, how to interpret, you know, less common variants in your DNA in these genes and and what the health effects might be. So they're, they're still doing fine. Didn't this case lead to protests? People protesting in front of the Supreme Court? They're, they they called it a, a demonstration. Demonstration, I'm sorry. Yeah, demonstration. <laughs> uh, but yeah, absolutely. This is the rare patent case where people were lined up, you know, the night before, um, sleeping on the steps of the Supreme Court to get a space in line to try to get inside. There were demonstrators with signs and uh, news crews. Um, again, uh, totally unlike the usual patent case. And most of them taking the side of the American Civil Liberties Union and the Public Patent Foundation? Yes, yes, for sure. The uh, the, the demonstration was organized by Breast Cancer Action, um, which is a advocacy group uh, for breast cancer patients, and, uh, and FORCE, which is a group for um, people who have these mutations but haven't yet developed cancer. Um, and they they organized the uh, the demonstration on the steps of the Supreme Court the morning of the arguments. So the Supreme Court decided that you can't the patents aren't valid because they relate to genetic information that's not inventive but is rather produced by nature. What about synthetic copies of a natural substance? Are they patentable? Not if they're identical to the natural substance. So, you know, this uh, the decision got put to a test very early. Um, Myriad, uh, like later in 2013, started to sue some of these competing labs who were now offering BRCA testing, um, saying that they synthetically created these very short uh, DNA probes um, that that Myriad 
created in the lab, right? These weren't just extracted from the body. They, they made them, but they're very short. But because the DNA sequence was exactly the same as the sequence in the body, the courts who heard that case and that set of cases ruled against Myriad. Even if you synthetically made a, uh, a DNA molecule or a piece of a molecule, if the sequence is the same as the one in the human body, then it's, it's not patentable. So where we stand right now is we could do the test, but we can't patent the sequences. That's right. Not if they're the sequences that exist in the human body naturally. And would that apply? Uh, we've been talking about, uh, well, mostly women's issues here because it, it all had to do with, uh, with breast cancer and the like. What about other forms of illnesses? Uh, they, they, this covers everything, the, the court decision? It, it does. Well, every, it covers all patents on, on human genes of, of every kind. And, and there are a lot of disease-associated genes, right? So cystic fibrosis and uh, a lot of rare diseases are hereditary in, in one way or another. And there are many screening tests that are, you know, uh, future parents can get um, to determine, you know, whether they want to get pregnant. Um, there are tests that are performed, you know, on, um, you know, the un unborn uh, infants. And uh, these these all now are are permitted. You previously um, all of these genes were were patented and clinics, for example, that were. Uh, testing for uh, a disease called Canavan's disease, which is a genetic disorder um, that uh, prenatal clinics uh, were, were giving for free, basically. These clinics all got shut down. They were not allowed to uh, give this test because Miami Children's Hospital patented that gene and, um, you know, would, would allow them to test, but only if they charged and paid the hospital um, of royalty, and that wasn't sustainable for clinics that were giving tests away for free. One of your reviewers says that this reads almost like a legal thriller. Was that something you had in mind when you were writing it? Well, you know, I, I'm I'm grateful for people who who enjoyed it. I, I wrote yeah, the book. You've got great reviews. Oh no, thank you. I, I I thought that this was just a really important story and an important case and. You know, there, there's plenty of academic legal writing about this case. It's, it's well known among patent law scholars in the biotech industry. But my sense was that the general public didn't know much about this. And I tried to write it in such a way that anybody can understand it, because, you know, I, I think it's important that people understand what the law is and, and what's happening. Well, it seems to me that many aspects of the law are uh, are known within that community, but uh, totally uh, not understood by the rest of us. Uh, to some degree, I suspect it's because uh, the media are uncomfortable in discussing these things or feel that um, they're, they're not, uh, what word do I want to use, that they're not capable of discussing it on a level that would make any sense. Yeah, they're, they're complicated issues. And, um, you know, there was certainly news coverage of, of this case as it went through the court system. And actually, one of the things the ACLU did that was very smart was try to get media attention 
um, you know, on this story. They they got 60 minutes to cover them. They were on the Today Show, um, all sorts of newspapers. But, um, you know, that was a number that was a, over a decade ago now. And uh, it seemed like people had forgotten about this. <laughs> Yet it's an issue again. Like, as I said, there are efforts in Congress to get these cases overturned. And I thought it would be useful to write this in a way that, um, you know, pretty much any educated uh, person could could get a hold of and understand. Well, you said it was a nonpartisan issue originally, but the efforts in Congress, um, are they partisan? Actually, uh, no, there are I mean, there uh, people on both sides on, of the aisle who are fighting for the uh, the patenting of genes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, in 2019, uh, Senator uh, Tom Tillis and Chris Coons, a Republican and a Democrat, introduced legislation um, that would amend the Patent Act in, in a bunch of different ways. Um, and one of the things that that Coons Tillis or Tillis Coons legislation would have done um, is effectively um, overturn all of the recent Supreme Court decisions on patent eligibility. The Mayo case you mentioned, the Bilski case you mentioned earlier, the Myriad case, those would all be eradicated by this legislation. And you know, it it's an economic issue more than a, um, a sort of a, a party line issue. The, the biotech industry, um, as, as well as other industries, have been very concerned about the Supreme Court's patent rulings over the last 10, 15 years. On the other hand, your book makes the case for them making the right decision. I thought that in this case, um, this was the right decision. I, I don't think that a human gene is an invention, uh, so to speak. And I, I think it was right to recognize that this is just a discovery, that scientific type of discovery that scientists make all the time, but that shouldn't be patented. You've testified before Congress on patent law matters. What were they interested in? What did, what did they want you to talk about? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, um, this summer, I, I did have the great privilege to testify before the Intellectual Property Subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and um, that topic was slightly different. Uh, you you probably are seeing the news right now about Elizabeth Holmes' trial yeah. um, for the company Theranos, which was going to be a miraculous blood testing a uh, company that never actually produced a blood testing machine, or at least that's what the uh, the testimony seems to be indicating. And, and by the uh, way, criminal... be before you go on, oh, yeah. from the start, that always had a, a slightly bad odor to it. Weren't people suspicious all along? Of Theranos? Yes. Um, well, did it just have strong? Suspicious. Did it just have powerful people behind it that uh, allowed it to continue? Well, there were powerful people, but but a lot of people who were pretty savvy uh, put a lot of money into this company, right? These venture capitalists and investors were not naive people, but, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see what the jury says in the fraud trial. But um, I think Theranos uh, did a pretty good job of, um, you know, pulling the wool over the public's eyes. At least that's 
I, I've read John Kerry's book, uh, Bad Blood, <laughs> and seen the documentary and read the reporting in the Wall Street Journal, all of which points to a, um, you know, a pretty suspect operation. Yeah, well, so do you think that this is all resolved or are we going to uh, start seeing you're going to have to write another book in another 10 years? <laughs> Well, there, there are lots of books, lots of books to uh, to write in this area, and and I give John Kerry at the Journal a huge amount of credit for the investigative work he did on that case. But but why I was testifying uh, was not about the guilt or innocence of Elizabeth Holmes, but about the fact that Theranos acquired uh, something between six hundred and a thousand patents on its blood testing technology the technology that never actually worked. Um, and the fact that they got these patents, I find to be very surprising. And uh, I believe that um, Senator Leahy, uh, who's the chair of the committee, uh, also found this surprising. Um, and the real problem with this is that when Theranos uh, went out of business and um, its creditors basically collected uh, on, on their the loans that they had made, a company called Fortress Investments, which is part of uh, Japan's SoftBank, a big investment company, collected and took possession of those 600 patents. And then it uh, basically gave these patents to a patent assertion entity that started to sue other companies under those Theranos patents. And one of the companies, one of the first companies they sued um, was a, a little company um, also here in Salt Lake City um, called BioFire that was uh, at the time, this was in February, March of 2000, it was creating one of the first COVID-19 diagnostic testing kits. Um, and some of these Theranos patents allegedly covered those kits. And so you've got this fraudulent company has hundreds of patents to its name that are now in the hands of a patent asserting entity um, interfering with the response to what is at that time an emerging pandemic. Well, is there anything you want to add before uh, we end this? Um, I, I, I just want to be clear. I'm not against patents. I, I think yeah. patents are essential. And, and there are thousands of computer technologies and aviation and spacecraft technologies. Yeah, if, people and invent things, if people invent things, they should have the right to, uh, to own the, the, that intellectual property, don't they? Exactly. Exactly. It is just that between the cracks and the cracks are getting bigger and bigger, people who don't invent things or who wish they invented something and can write a patent application very cleverly um, to make it seem like they invented something um, are also getting patents. And those patents, once they're issued, you know, they're they're like uh, loose cannons on deck. They are just as powerful as uh, the patents from people who did invent something. And um you know, I think the patent office could be more uh, strict in the number of patents that it granted in a lot of these cases. Jorge L. Contreras teaches intellectual property, science policy, and genetics law at the University of Utah. He has served on government advisory committees and testified before Congress on patent law matters. And he has written a book called The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA. It is published by Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. And um, it has been my great pleasure to talk with you today. This has uh, been a fascinating subject. 
Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering our program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access any of our over 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And if you would like to write to me, whether it's to talk about a show that I've done or to make suggestions, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI so we can keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Well, we talk about things that other people are not talking about, uh, and we think that that's important and probably important to you. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950, and we hope you'll do it right now. We, we need your help to continue bringing this unique, in-depth content. And um, nobody tells me what to do on this show. This is a unique situation. I've worked in other public broadcasting entities, and uh, there were always concerns about crossing certain lines. At BAI, we are given total freedom. Uh, they respect my sense of what is important, and I respect my audience's sense of what is important. So... We can do things that we can't do anywhere else, but we need your help to continue to bring this unique, in-depth content. And as I mentioned at the half, anyone who makes a one-time contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, the, the Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA by today's guest, Jorge Contreras. But whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up and show your support for Leonard Lopez at Large and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. If you tune in regularly to the show, please let us know that you appreciate what we do here by going online to... Give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that is 100% sponsored by its listeners, alive and thriving. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll do your part with a tax-deductible contribution so we can keep it going. And, and by the way, there's another thing to, to consider right now. WBAI has... Uh, unfortunately, uh, had to institute an emergency tower fund drive to pay the back rent on our broadcast tower. Without that tower, we cannot stay on the air. So I hope that you'll also consider going to WBAI's website, WBAI.org, to find a link to the tower fund donation page. Um, and uh, any amount is appreciated. You can call 212-209-2950 to make a tower fund donation. Again, that number, 212-209-2950. And since this is near the end of the year and people are thinking about their taxes, what's a better time to come through for WBAI than right now? 
Well, we hope that you'll join us again for tomorrow's show when investigative journalist and regular contributor to this program, Bob Henley, will discuss some of the most important but generally underreported stories of the day. And we'll see you then. Thanks for listening.